This week on Viewpoints. So upon first looking at the programs, parents are oftentimes and understandably tricked into believing this is a safe environment, but what goes on beyond those doors is a a far different story. The darker side of inpatient youth rehabilitation. Then... It was a real struggle for investigators before they were able to team up with forensic scientists. The birth of the American CSI. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now. So let us tell you something you do want to hear. You are powerful. You're a warrior who bathes in your enemy's tears. Then you step out of that refreshing tear bath and into a bathrobe that somehow looks good on you. Yeah, you can pull off a robe. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better when you save money for driving safely with Snapshot from Progressive. Mmm, savings you can use to buy more robes. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Snapshot not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. You're ready to get back into yoga, so you order the essentials. A non-slip mat, yoga blocks to keep balance, and an exercise ball. And you use your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential yoga gear. Noise-canceling headphones. Welcome. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. For some people, adolescence can be the most tumultuous period of life. It's a time of immense change, both physically and emotionally, and is filled with many external pressures pushing young adults in different directions. Therapy is one resource that can help, but sometimes the right intentions mixed with a mentality of tough love can end up doing more damage than good. In these extreme scenarios, employees from youth rehabilitation programs travel to the home in the middle of the night and whisk away teens who have little idea what's happening. They're taken away from their families and everything they know, all in an effort to get them back on the right track. When a child or a teenager is on a path of self-destruction or wayward behavior or a streak of maleficence, parents often turn to what are known as behavioral treatment programs or emotional growth schools. And they take the form of either therapeutic boarding schools or residential treatment facilities, which are sometimes ranches, and then wilderness experiential therapy programs. That's Kenneth R. Rosen. He's currently a senior editor and correspondent for Newsweek and is the author of Troubled, the Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. But before Rosen was a successful journalist, he was a troubled teen who skipped school, went out drinking, and was largely out of control. Looking back now, he says that many of these stunts stemmed from larger family issues that were happening at the time. For a mother who was going through a divorce and was seeking to raise myself and my sister, it was not an easy household, and everyone was at a loss to help me. The teachers at my school, the guidance counselors at my school, therapists that my mother sent me to, inpatient and outpatient 
rehabilitation facilities all really turned up with their hands upward and said, we're not sure we can help this kid. And it was at that point that my mom was approached by an education consultant who was referred to her by someone at my high school who then told her of these behavioral modification, tough love treatment programs. And they marketed them as a silver bullet to fix me, right? There was this one option that all you had to do was send your son or daughter away to this program, and they'd end up a year, two years later, better off than when they went in. With this in mind, Rosen's mom signed off on this type of therapy, truly believing that this difficult experience would help her 16-year-old son. Over the next 288 days, Rosen shuffled through three different programs in various states. The first was out in the wilderness and focused on hard manual labor and repetitive therapeutic exercises in order to provide teens with structure. For the wilderness program, we spent our days hiking, just hiking five, ten miles. In between those hikes, we would stop and counselors would quiz us on our emotions and try to hold impromptu therapy sessions and pick our brains apart and sort of a constant rolling therapy. We would have to build fires and set up camp, and if we didn't do it within a certain amount of time, we would face consequences. Um, we would oftentimes, before dinner, be told we needed to write a journal, which was more or less a sort of letter to the counselors recounting our emotional state, and we were expected to use all the terminology of treatment justification, rationalizing, internalizing, all these words that weren't really fitting in with our vocabulary as wayward teenagers, but if we hadn't completed the diary on time or in a way that the counselor saw was sufficient to meet some obscene or obscure need, we wouldn't be able to have dinner. We'd have to rewrite the entire diary. This prison-style environment ingrained in Rosen that he was a bad egg. Rather than receiving understanding and compassion in order to deal with past trauma, Rosen was met with the belief that he was past the point of help. You're labeled a troubled teen and you're reminded over and over again that you've led a life of irreparable damage, that you become that troubled teen regardless. There's no sort of hope there. They, they break you down, but they never build you back up. This isolating, tough love treatment plan that goes on for months or years on end takes a toll. It cements the notion that these teens are nothing better than the havoc they wreak. Rosen says this results in the cycle only continuing into adulthood where the consequences are far greater. The idea of the programs was to prevent children from going into the criminal justice system. It was meant to prevent and stemmy any bad actions that could lead to death or harm to themselves or others. And unfortunately, it ended up leading a lot of former clients into the criminal justice system to say nothing of the myriad deaths of despair that would come from overdose, from murder, from suicide. And I found the irony in this when I was then, after returning home from these programs, six months later, admitted to a juvenile delinquent center for a crime that I had committed and was more comfortable there than I was back in those other programs. And the cycle continues today. Many of these private therapeutic businesses operate in states across the country and charge a heavy price tag for their services. Despite reports of abuse and manipulation, they have free reign running largely under the radar and rarely ever discussed in the public eye because the topic is taboo. We've seen these accusations of sexual abuse and physical abuse for decades now, and uh, despite government accountability office reports, despite local state investigations, nothing has changed. They still proliferate and they still continue to draw in billions of dollars a year, and I think the only way that we can 
work to better the programs is not necessarily investigating them further, but turning back to the family unit. If we can starve them of the income, if we can levy sanctions against them in that way, having people focused on community-based treatment, having the families in therapy together, and working to mend and repair whatever broken parts of the child's experience led to these wayward behaviors, then we would see the dissolution of those programs and the hurt that is wrought on those children. The main reason these programs are still around is because they appeal to desperate parents who've run out of options. From the outside, they're marketed as secluded, state-of-the-art therapeutic rehabilitation centers that focus on the mind and body. But inside closed doors, it's a much different story that never really tackles the heart of the problem. We're asked to learn a whole different set of rules only to come back to a, a situation, the home life, that hasn't changed. And the home life has often been the cause and the reason why these children were sent away. They have broken home lives. They're in foster care or they're with their grandparents, their parents are on drugs. Maybe they were abused by a family member or a close friend. And then they're asked to change because the problem is seen to be on their shoulders when in fact it's the environment in which they were raised. Ultimately, Rosen broke out of this cycle of being in the system and was able to get the compassionate help he needed. He eventually found a purpose in life through his career and self-growth, and this propelled him forward. But even today, he still works through the depression, anxiety, and the lasting trauma of those years. A lot of former clients from these programs refer to themselves as survivors, and I understand where they're coming from, but I also disagree because survivor means that it's over, that they've made it through something, and while they've made it through the programs and the treatment, there's still these lasting effects that are reverberating into their late 20s and early 30s. All in all, he views the experience as part of who he is today and hopes to spread awareness about the damaging effects of these programs so parents understand the true extent of what they're signing off on. Most of the more than 100 or so interviews I conducted for Trouble, it seemed that most people forgave their parents. There were very few instances where there was animosity toward their parents. I'm seeing those for me. I, I don't hold it against them for making this decision. They wanted to improve my life, and they did everything they could in their power, and I commend them for that. I just don't think that they were educated enough, and I think the programs weren't being honest in what sort of treatment was being given at these programs for them to make an informed decision. To find out more about this topic, helpful therapeutic resources, and our guest, Kenneth R. Rosen, visit viewpointsradio.org. You can also check out his new book, Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs, available online and in bookstores. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, how one man helped launch the field of criminal investigation in the U.S. when Viewpoints returns. Did you know one in four small businesses will close due to cash flow difficulties or lack of access to capital? But they don't have to. According to Lauren Schifrin of Revolution Capital, the country's leading provider of factoring and cash flow financing, there's a safe and easy way to access your capital immediately without hurting your bottom line. It's called factoring. We buy your invoices and pay you same day. That provides you with the immediate liquidity and access to the capital you need to grow your business. 
because now more than ever, companies should have a finance partner that's on their side. Revolution Capital provides flexible funding options to small to medium-sized businesses that would like immediate access to capital, and they respect your business relationships to help you succeed and grow. Find out more at RevInc.com. That's R-E-V-I-N-C.com. I'm one of thousands of women with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC. Which is breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body. I'm living in the moment and taking Ibrand's Pablocyclib. Ibrand's 125-milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for postmenopausal women or for men with HR-positive, HER2-negative MBC as the first hormonal-based therapy. Be in your moment. Ask your doctor about Ibrand's and visit Ibrand's.com. Patients taking Ibrand's can develop low white blood cell counts, which may cause serious infections that can lead to death. Ibrand's may cause severe inflammation of the lungs that can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrand's, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are pregnant, breastfeeding, or plan to become pregnant. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. In the 1920s and early 30s, during the era of prohibition, crime in the U.S. skyrocketed. Many cases had no witnesses or clear ties as criminals became smarter and more savvy. Murders were poorly investigated and went unsolved as law enforcement struggled to connect the dots. One possible resource, forensic science, was not yet a fully developed study and had many skeptics in the States. Because of this and other factors, the courts sent many innocent people to prison while guilty criminals walked. One man was determined to change this. His name was Edward Oscar Heinrich. He was a chemist who found a calling in solving crimes. When forensics was in its nascent era, there was fingerprinting available. There were uh, some toxicology. They were just beginning forensic geology. But really, police officers leaned pretty heavily on confessions, and they you know, crossed their fingers for witnesses. And they also leaned on the third degree. So there weren't a lot of options for investigators during this time period until all of these forensic scientists started coming up with new tools, better ballistics, things like that. But it was a real struggle for investigators before they were able to team up with forensic scientists. That's Kate Winkler Dawson, author of American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of the American CSI. In short, forensic science is the scientific analysis of physical evidence at a crime scene. Really, one of the most important things he did was he developed a technique for photographing using a dual microscope, two bullets at the same time. And this had not been done before. So he was able to photograph these two bullets side by side without sort of doing the 1920s version of Photoshopping. And it created a hallmark case, and it's a technique that people use today. It is important to note that some of the methods Heinrich used back then are not as common today. One example is handwriting analysis. Modern experts say a person's handwriting can change from year to year, even from day to day. Similar to handwriting is fingerprinting, which has also fallen out of favor. You know, any of these techniques that are what they call pattern matching. So you have an analyst who 
picks up a piece of evidence like fingerprint and they look at it and they say, oh, this definitively matches the fingerprint found on a suspect. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I just had to go to the DMV last year, and it took me three or four times with my fingerprint, with an expert there trying to get the fingerprint on the little machine to get it right. So the likelihood that we are going to be able to match somebody definitively is unlikely. And so fingerprinting has fallen under scrutiny. Bloodstain pattern analysis absolutely has. Footprint analysis has. But there were things that he also used that were really impressive. Forensic geology is really solid. Ballistics is really solid. Toxicology is solid. So you try different things, and I think the main point is Oscar believed in everything that he did. He had this never-ending confidence that I think was problematic. A big downfall for Heinrich was that he could never admit when he made a mistake. This damaged his credibility and eventually led to the demise of his career. Even with modern technologies, Dawson says that errors still happen every day in the field. Take DNA testing, for instance. Something like DNA analysis, we see that there have been problems with testing, with the way people test, with particularly how the samples have been stored, especially in the decades before really we understood DNA analysis and things were stored incorrectly or collected incorrectly. So I think as much as we would like some sort of a a gold standard for forensic techniques, I think that they all need to be looked at very closely. And the National Association of, or National Academy of Sciences did that several years ago. They wrote a scathing report that really took a close look at all forensic techniques and gave us a list of all of the problems with the different techniques. And that's not to say that they shouldn't be used. They should just not be the sole piece of evidence against someone, particularly in a really, really serious case. Scrutiny is important because it leads to improvement and stricter regulations in the industry. Dawson notes that forensic evidence often has such a profound effect on jurors because it's definitive when shown. Many juries now come to expect and rely on forensic evidence in order to reach a verdict. It's a well-known phenomenon known as the CSI effect, thanks to the TV show CSI, which was the most popular network series for years. Each week, viewers watched forensic experts collect evidence at a crime scene, analyze it in state-of-the-art labs, and catch the killer. It didn't matter if it was fictional. Today, some jurors come in assuming the same level of forensic evidence in court. They expect it when they sit on a jury that they are going to be presented with a lot of evidence that's forensic, that's lock solid, that has been analyzed by a computer, that you see the fingerprints matching, and it's when you don't get that, and when a jury doesn't get that type of evidence, it makes it much more difficult to kind of get at the truth because not a lot of cases have that. And you know, I talked to a prosecutor one time who said, boy, she would rather have a circumstantial case than a case that relies on one forensic tool like DNA or fingerprinting, because with enough circumstantial evidence, it could be unbreakable, you know, but with one forensic technique, a good defense attorney can break it down pretty easily. So I do think that juries really do expect a lot more than they may be offered in many cases. Another issue with forensic evidence is the lack of a national standard for training, collection, and analysis. Because of this, each criminologist may interpret results differently. 
An expert practicing blood stain analysis in Texas may reach a separate conclusion than one in New York. So many of these things are the opinion of the analyst. And if the analyst is not good or not well-trained or has a bad day or is just off, when you lean heavily on those techniques, then as a prosecutor or as a defense attorney, then you're doing a, a disservice. Dawson believes that in many cases, there must be an extra layer of evidence in addition to the forensic analysis in order to reach a fair and just verdict. I think it's dangerous when you are looking to convict someone, particularly in a capital case, on forensic techniques that need to be evaluated more. And that happens so often today. You know, they, in some ways, they want to, you know, catch criminals and everybody wants that. But in order to make society safer and fairer, we absolutely have to scrutinize these tools much more. As a career criminologist, Heinrich took part in more than 2,000 cases and helped solve around 1,000. Looking past innovation in the lab, he also had a knack for dissecting a crime scene and finding key details that others missed. Most forensic scientists in the 20s were very haphazard with the way they recorded their data and what they did and where they put it and how they stored it, and he really set a high standard. He was so meticulous, and I think probably obsessive-compulsive disorder for sure, that he was able to collect all of these things and keep them straight and organized in a way that allowed him to then go back and reevaluate, you know, this crime scene and reevaluate the crime. And his attention to detail is something I've never quite seen with anybody else. So I think that all of these techniques, particularly the one you're talking about being, you know, highly organized and using certain containers and he labeled everything. And I started recognizing a pattern in the way that he was recording things in his journals that allowed him to go back and really easily reference all of this material. And then he would always type up this incredibly detailed sort of memo to the district attorneys or whoever had hired him that really laid out the case very, very well. And that's why he was so popular. That's why he was hired all the time. Many of Edward Oscar Heinrich's methods are still taught today. You can read the fascinating details of many of the cases he cracked in Kate Winkler Dawson's new book, American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of the American CSI, available now online and in bookstores. You can learn more about all of our past guests by visiting our website at viewpointsradio.org. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Polly Hansen. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. Our studio engineer is Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. What are you going to do with your old car? You can try selling it, you could junk it, or you can donate it to Heritage for the Blind. Your car will be towed away for free and your donation is tax deductible. Just call 1-800-835-1478. Heritage for the Blind accepts cars, vans, trucks, and boats. It doesn't matter if your vehicle runs or not. It will be towed away for free and you'll be supporting those that need help. Heritage for the Blind is a nonprofit organization that helps the visually impaired live fuller lives. Call right now to donate your car, and as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day vacation voucher to over 50 locations. Call Heritage for the Blind right now. Call 1-800-835-1478. Donating is easy, and your vehicle is towed away for free. 
Plus, you'll get a free vacation voucher for donating. Call now, 1-800-835-1478. That's 1-800-835-1478. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. HBO recently released its two-part documentary, Tiger, which documents the rise, fall, and rise of Tiger Woods. The documentary has been getting headlines for its frank look at Woods' sex scandal, with the golfer's agent calling the documentary salacious. And he's not entirely wrong. The documentary is a bit salacious, and its inclusion of former National Enquirer editor Neil Bolton, who takes audiences through the ins and outs of how the story broke in the first place, did leave me feeling a little gross. His inclusion in the documentary was definitely curious, especially since his credibility is questionable at best. And yet, despite that shortcoming, I found the documentary overall to be enlightening, engaging, and entertaining. As a sports fan, I preferred the first half, which documents the rise of the golf superstar as he broke into a predominantly white sport as a non-white outsider. Tiger's relationship with his father is explored in more depth than I had ever seen before, and watching how Earl, Tiger's father and closest ally, allegedly became something of an outsider to Tiger by the end of his life was heartbreaking and incredibly humanizing. The insights into Tiger's life before and during his meteoric rise were extremely insightful and well done. Even through the sections that dealt directly with Woods' sex scandal, I found the film did a decent job of humanizing the superstar, especially when it rolled footage of how former Augusta National Golf Course chairman Billy Payne demonized Woods on the eve of the Masters. Tiger had messed up in his personal life, but the documentary fairly questions why that entitled a golf course chairman to publicly humiliate him. Ultimately, the documentary Tiger plays in concert with ESPN Films' The Last Dance about Michael Jordan as documents of two of the biggest sports superstars to ever exist and how they rose to prominence, dominated their sports, and navigated their way through scandals. HBO's Tiger is not a perfect film, but it's also about an imperfect subject. Personally, I found the story to be one worth telling and one worth exploring, even when it was messy and uncomfortable. Tiger is now streaming on HBO Max. I'm Evan Rook. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. You decided to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you order the essentials, a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you use your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member. 
which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. And that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.